I get more stuff over my desk every single week on how we ought to market the church. I want to tell you, the church of the living God doesn't need to be marketed. All we need to do is guard the treasure, retain the standard, preach the gospel. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of 2 Timothy, and as Pastor Carl covers chapter 1, verses 8 to 18, in a message entitled, The Christian and the Gospel, we look at three responsibilities that the Apostle Paul said every Christian has as it relates to sharing the gospel. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl now as we pick up where we left off yesterday. What is the very first responsibility a man has to the gospel? I mean, without stutter or stammer, he would say, of course, well, you must respond in faith. You must yield your will to Christ's will. You must trust in his shed blood and his resurrection to pay your debt for sin. But his focus here is not with the unbeliever. His focus is with the believer. And so he spells out in three dimensions the responsibility that the Christian has to the gospel. First, our responsibility to share the gospel. In verse 10, he reminds us that Christ abolished death and brought life through the gospel, and therefore we have a responsibility to preach it. Look at verse 11. For which, namely the gospel, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Now, in my Bible, I have the word I underlined because it's emphasized in the original Greek New Testament. There are some languages when you have a verb in it, it's contained the subject. We even do it rarely in English. I can say run. Run who? You run. Run. The, 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 the subject is implied. Well, this is especially true in Greek. The he, the she, the we, the us is very often, most of the time, left out. It's contained in the verb. You know from the way the verb is written what it is that he's speaking about, who it is that he's addressing. But understand, when God wanted to emphasize something, when he wanted to underline it in red, when he wanted to pound his fist on the pulpit, he would write the pronoun a second time. And that is what precisely what Paul does. He writes the word I contained in the verb a second time. In essence, Paul is saying, I, I of all people, have been appointed to proclaim the gospel. Paul has a sense of personal wonder that God would use him to preach the gospel. And really, any Christian who gets his mind around the gospel in his own sinful fallen state and what it is that God delivered him from will get the same sense of awe and wonder that God would choose you, that God would commission you, that he would privilege you, that he would give you a commission to preach the gospel to everyone who will Listen. Now, Paul speaks here of being appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He describes a threefold appointment. So we might ask, might ask here, what is the difference between an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher? Well, I think in the sense of the gospel in which he's speaking of, it was the apostles who formulated the gospel. In the sense, they wrote it down. Christ gave it directly to them. They wrote it down in this body of scripture that we call the faith. Preachers proclaim it like a herald and teachers systematically explain it. 
And while there are no apostles today, the Bible is crystal clear on that. And while most of you here have not been gifted of God or called of God to be preachers and teachers so as to earn your living from the gospel, all of us have a responsibility to share Jesus Christ. Paul, when he, he spoke of his eagerness, he said, Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, what is it that made Paul so eager to preach the gospel? Well, for starters, let's think about this term, gospel. Paul is eager to preach something, and that something is the gospel. It's articular. He's not talking about a gospel, but the gospel. Now, the word is euangelion. It simply means good news. And in the first century era, very often this word euangelion, gospel, good news did not always have a religious connotation as it typically does in our day. If you lived in the first century, you would use this word to describe any kind of good news. If you live today as a student and you passed the very difficult exam like my daughter did on Friday, her good news was, I passed. That would be the gospel of your schooling. And in some cases, it might be a miracle. If you're fighting a war... And it finally ends, your gospel to your fellow soldier who has never heard is, the war is over, it's finished, we've won. If you are married and you have a baby, your gospel is, it's a boy, it's a girl. The gospel, the word gospel, is often used in a non-religious sense of any kind of good news. But understand here in 2 Timothy 1.10 and in Romans 1.15, he is not speaking of just any good news, but the good news. Not just a gospel, but the, the gospel, namely that Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And this is good news. This is the best news. Paul has already written to Timothy in his first letter. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That's good news. And if you are a sinner and you really understand what your sin deserves, this is the best news you will ever hear in this life. It ought to make you shout, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and as a teacher. Has God opened your eyes to be saved? Has he opened your eyes to the wonder of the gospel? If he has, then you ought to share it because good news is for sharing. When you have a birth in your home, you don't hide it. You're quick to announce it. If you have a cure for cancer, you don't keep it to yourself. You share it with others. You have something far greater than a cure for death. You have a cure for eternal death, and it's eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And you cannot monopolize it. You must share it. And so here is our responsibility to share the gospel. But secondly, I want you to consider our responsibility to suffer for the gospel. If you remember in verse 8, Paul has already summoned Timothy not to be ashamed and invited him to join him in suffering for the gospel. Let me read it again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. 
And of course, Paul never asked Timothy or anyone else to do anything that he is unwilling to do himself. And so he brings both verbs together in verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. The same two verbs. Throughout the New Testament, there is a link between suffering and the gospel. I was sharing the gospel with a gentleman last week, and I reminded him, I said, you have one of two choices. You can either reject the gospel like the man whom I shared with in the previous hour had just done, or you can accept the gospel, you can yield your will to Jesus Christ, you can allow him to become the Lord of your heart where he changes you and get new life. And his immediate response, it came right off his lips, why on earth would anyone want to reject the gospel? Why would any thinking person really want to reject such good news? Now that was a good question he was asking. But I want to tell you, the Bible teaches that when you preach the gospel, there will be people who will oppose you. Well, on what account do they oppose those who preach the gospel such that there are times when we need to suffer for it? It's very simple. The gospel is the gospel of grace. And the gospel of grace speaks of unmerited, undeserved, unearned salvation, the gift of God which shatters and decimates all human pride. The gospel forces a man to look at his rebellion before a holy God. The gospel forces a man to look at the root of sin. Namely, I want to be the Lord of my life and to submit to Christ's lordship. Listen, if you are not commandable, you're not savable. And when God saves a man, he is able to command a man. He's able to shape a man because when the grace of God that brings you salvation comes, it teaches you to say no to ungodliness and yes to things that are righteous. And so unregenerate man often loves his sin, Jesus said, more than he loves God. He does not and will not and care not with his natural mind admit the gravity, the grossness, the guilt of his sin. He doesn't like the truth that we are all equally in need of a Savior, that the ground is level at the cross, that prostitutes, primps, presidents and priests all have the same need to come and bow their heart before Jesus Christ is Lord. The lost man doesn't want to admit his bankruptcy, his complete helplessness and inability to save himself. And so, as Paul told the Corinthians, the gospel is a stumbling block. He spoke of the stumbling block of the cross. And so like the preacher that I heard several Sundays ago, he preached the whole hour about man and his merit and never once mentioned Christ and his cross. Why is that? Because Christ and his cross is an offense to the intellectual, to the self-righteous. It is a stumbling block. And very often one will substitute one in order, as Paul told the Galatians, that they might not be persecuted for the cause of Christ. But let me tell you, no preacher, no pastor, no pew warmer can faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ if they don't trim it, if they don't water it down. Friend, it's going to be offensive to some people. To some folks, it will be a sweet aroma to life. To others, it will be the stench of death in their nostrils. So one, we have a responsibility to share the gospel. Two, we have a responsibility to suffer for the gospel. Finally, 
there is our responsibility to safeguard the gospel. Now, leaving the rest of verse 12 for a moment, we'll come back to it. Notice Paul's double exhortation to Timothy in verses 13 and 15. 13 and 14, he says, retain, that's the first command, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, because you can't do it in your own power. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul gives two commands, and he refers to the gospel using two expressions. Retain the standard of sound words. Guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul refers to the gospel here and in other places as sound words. We have seen that this word sound could be translated healthy words. It's the same Greek word that's used in the gospel when Jesus heals a sick person. Previously, they'd been maimed or diseased, but now they've been made whole and well. Likewise, the gospel is sound words, healing words, and that it brings life and forgiveness when it's proclaimed. And so he has this objective standard. You are to retain the standard of sound words, but you are to do it, as he says, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul is not simply interested in what Timothy is to retain. He's also interested in how Timothy is to retain it. You are to tenaciously hold to the truth, but do it in the way that Jesus Christ would do it. So the gospel is sound words that need to be retained, but it is also a treasure that needs to be guarded. The gospel is been entrusted, it's been deposited with God's people, the church. First to Paul, then to Timothy, then to the church at large. And Timothy, like Paul, is to guard it. Now this Greek word for loxon, to guard, is used in biblical days to guard something that is precious, to protect it, that it might not in any way be damaged or taken away or lost. Now there have always been heretics who have been bent on corrupting the gospel, on distorting the gospel, on watering down the gospel. The church is filled with false teachers today. But I want to tell you something. What we are to do is we're to guard it. We're not to trim it. We're not to water it down. We're to hold it in its purity we are not to be distracted from the so-called marketing of the church. I get more stuff over my desk every single week on how we ought to market the church. I want to tell you, the church of the living God doesn't need to be marketed. All we need to do is guard the treasure, retain the standard, preach the gospel. And so here's Timothy. Watch it, Timothy. Guard it. Guard it tenaciously. Why? Because we're told in verse 15, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phrygellus and Homogenes. Now the tense that he uses refers to a particular time, a particular event, undoubtedly Paul's second arrest. Perhaps Paul's second arrest caused some to lose heart, as if Christianity could be finished, but probably and more likely, in light of the call to suffer for the gospel, they fled. Why? Because they did not want to be identified with Paul because their head too might be on the chopping block. Now, if we don't know anything about these two men, Phygelus and Homogenes, it's the only time they're mentioned here in the New Testament, but Paul singles these two out 
because they're ringleaders that lead this defection of being ashamed of Paul and being willing to openly identify him. But there was one bright exception, Onesiphorus. Look at verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. This man refreshed Paul. He served Paul. He wasn't afraid or ashamed of his chains. His name means the bringer of profit, or colloquially we might translate it the refresher. And here's a man who lived up to his name. Verse 17, but when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me, and found me, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, when Paul was arrested, Onesiphorus left Ephesus and followed Paul all the way to the Rome, all the way to Rome. And when he got to Rome, he diligently searched for Paul until he found his particular dungeon. And Paul was so grateful for this man. He prays for him twice over in this verse, first for his household and then for him. Now, I might say parenthetically here that Roman Catholic commentators have suggested that this reference to the house of Onesiphorus and the prayer, not just for his house, but for the man and that day, which is clearly, as verse 12 indicates, a reference to the day when we meet God in heaven, that Onesiphorus must be dead and that what Paul is doing is he's praying for this dead person that he might find mercy. Please understand, neither this verse or the one they couple with it from 2 Maccabees teaches that we should ever pray for the dead. 2 Maccabees, if you're not familiar with it, it's one of the intertestament books written between that 400-year segment between Malachi and Matthew. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it never once, not even in Jude, does it ever quote the apocryphal literature. When Christ summed up the Old Testament, he spoke of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. No apocrypha. No intertestament books. Listen. If you teach salvation partly by works and you haven't done enough good works, then logically, if man merits heaven, then there would be some interim place, namely purgatory, where you might suffer for a period of time. And so maybe you ought to pray for such dead people that they might pop out of purgatory and go into heaven. But listen, I want to tell you something. The moment you die, you are either forever in heaven or forever in hell. And no amount of prayer by any preacher, any priest, any rabbi, or anyone else you can think of will do one bit of good. So if you come and ask me to pray for your dead mother or father, please don't, because there's nothing I can do. The time to speak and to pray for them is now, while they're alive, that they might hear the gospel and believe. And so he prays for this man. Why? Because he's separated from his family. A great sacrifice. He went all the way from Ephesus to Rome. And he prays, in essence, the word mercy is used in different ways in the New Testament, primarily as help. Remember the man who couldn't pay his debt and he begged for help. Remember the good Samaritan who showed mercy, the man who needed help. Oh, God, bless him in the judgment. Give this man, give him great reward. That, in essence, was Paul's prayer. But what I want you to see in the context, that in light of this great defection that went throughout the church at Asia, 
with the exception of Onesiphorus, Timothy has been given this great responsibility to guard the gospel. Everyone else has turned away from it. They were unwilling to be persecuted and to suffer for it. So Paul is assuring Timothy in his loyalty to be faithful to the gospel, stick with it. But he reminds him, you don't guard it alone. He already said he had the power of the Spirit to do it. But go back to verse 12. I want you to look carefully at this verse in its context because it's often used out of context. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. For what reason? For the reason of the gospel for which he had been appointed as an apostle, a teacher, and a preacher. For this reason, I suffer all things, but I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I've given to him. Now, the latter part of this verse is one of those verses that have been well memorized by a lot of Christians. And they often memorize it and claim it as a verse teaching the doctrine of eternal security. Now, please understand, the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal security. It wasn't until 1542 that a man by the name of Jacob Arminius, for the first time in human history, taught that someone could lose salvation. And those who believe that represent a minority, certainly less than 10% of the body of Christ worldwide. Understand, the Bible teaches, if you've genuinely been saved, evidenced with a call to holiness on your life, that once you are saved, you are saved forever. That is a true statement, the eternal security of the believer, but this verse is not teaching that. The deposit that he's referring to is not what I've committed to him in terms of my soul, but what he has committed to me, namely the gospel. Literally, the Greek text reads, he is able to guard my deposit until that day. Now, it's a little bit hard to translate directly from the Greek into English, but here's the point. Paul was persuaded that God had given him something, something that he calls my deposit and that God would take what he had given and turn back to Jesus Christ and keep it until that day when as an apostle and as a Christian, he would give an account for his stewardship and his faithfulness with the gospel. Paul was confident, and the God whom he had believed, that God was able to guard this deposit, this gospel. He's saying, in essence, I know whom I believe, that he is able to guard this deposit, this gospel, that he has given to me, that I in turn have entrusted back to him. Now, I want to tell you, you get a hold of this and it's freeing. I used to get so bent out of shape when I'd see some of these false teachers. But when I understand that the ultimate guard of the gospel, though I have a responsibility as a preacher and a Christian, the ultimate guard of the gospel is God himself. Everywhere in the world today, the evangelical church is being ridiculed and slandered and spoken against. And there's apostasy in all of our mainline denominations where people have abandoned the faith of their fathers. But we need not fear. God is sovereign with his gospel. God has protected it for 21 long centuries. And God will never allow the light of the gospel to be extinguished. Oh, like Timothy, we have a responsibility to defend the truth. But God himself is the final guardian. 
Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel is good news. It is about salvation that is to be proclaimed. It started in eternity past. It is worked out in time and space. And someday it will be ultimately consummated in heaven. And our first duty is to share the gospel. If God has truly saved you, he has given you a responsibility to do whatever you can do through your household to get the gospel out. Our first duty is to share the gospel. And if we faithfully, consistently share the gospel, sooner or later... We will suffer for the gospel because the authentic gospel has never been popular. It humbles the sinner too much. And when called to suffer for it, we must be careful never to trim it, never to water it down to make it palatable to the unregenerate mind because then we are preaching a false gospel and misrepresenting our Lord. And so here is our threefold responsibility to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to safeguard it faithfully. We are to spread it effectively and actively. And we are to be willing to suffer for it bravely. Are you willing to do that? Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity once again to open your word, which is alive. And I recognize, Father, that there are people here who may have a form of Christianity. They know all the right words. Theologically, they are in line. But they have never in faith embraced Jesus Christ as Lord. And so their life has never changed. And they're trying to be different in an old nature. And what they need is a birth from above. And only you can give it to them. But you promised that whoever would call upon your name would be saved. You cannot lie, the word of God says. You said in your word, it's impossible for you to lie. You said you're not like a man that you would ever lie. Faith says, I believe what you said. God, you said because of what you did through Christ. That if I would call upon his name, that today can be the day of salvation. Do you have that assurance? You say, well, I hope I'd go to heaven. I think I might. Then, friend, you've never come in faith. You must believe what God promised you. God said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Would you today in the quietness of your heart say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Thank you for dying in my place, for shedding your blood, for taking the punishment I deserve. As the living, reigning Lord, I trust you now to save me. Would you say that? Taking God at his word in faith, by grace, through faith, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you've saved me, I will openly, publicly confess you before men. Now, Father, help some man, some woman, some boy, some girl today to do that. None of us have the promise of tomorrow. You said today is the day of salvation. None of us have the promise that the Spirit of God at work in our lives today will be work tomorrow. Help someone to come and help some other dear believer who will be unashamed of your people to come with us and to stand with us and to say, I will, with these people, preach and share the gospel and serve until Jesus comes. Would you do that today? Father, help people to do it in response to your grace. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
to listen again to today's study, The Christian and the Gospel from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting message 2TM2. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl begins a message entitled, Laboring for Christ. Join us then when we search the scriptures.